Judges 11, verse 12. Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? The king of the Ammonites said to Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came from Egypt, they seized my land from the, from, from the Arnon to Jabbok and the Jordan. Now restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites to tell them, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came from Egypt, Israel traveled through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Please let us travel through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent messengers to the king of Moab, but he refused. So Israel stayed in Kadesh. Then they traveled through the wilderness and around the lands of Edom and Moab. They came to the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon, but did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, saying, King of Heshbon, King of Heshbon, Israel said to him, Please let us travel through your land to our country. But Sion would not trust Israel to pass through his territory. Instead, Sion gathered all his people, camped at Jahaz, and fought with Israel. Then the Lord God of Israel handed over Sion to all his people of it to Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of the entire land of the Amorites who lived in that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the to the Jabbok, and from wilderness and from the wilderness to the Jordan. The Lord God of Israel has now driven out the Amorites before his people Israel, and will you now force us out? Isn't it true that you may possess whatever your god Chemosh drives, you, drives out for you, and we may possess everything the Lord our God drives out before us? Now are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend with Israel or fight against them? While Israel lived 300 years in Heshbon and its villages in Aror and its villages... <coughs> And in the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, why didn't you take them back at that time? I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. Let the words, let, let the Lord who is judge decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. But the king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent him. Okay, so after having accepted that initial proposal made by, the, by Gilead, by the leaders of Gilead, to be their appointed leader and their spokesman, Jephthah now begins his campaign against the Ammonites by first attempting to find a diplomatic solution to this crisis. Jephthah begins by doing this by sending messengers to Israel's oppressors to ask them a simple question. What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? You see, Jephthah was determined that at all costs 
to settle the Ammonite crisis peacefully, negotiating with them concerning Israel's and, and the Ammonites' conflicting land claims. He was essentially asking the king of the Ammonites, what's your problem? What's your problem attacking me inside the land that belongs to me? Well, the response to the king of the sons of Ammon to Jephthah's first approach is also, in, is also simple and to the point. By invading the land of Gilead, the Ammonites were reclaiming the land they believed originally belonged to them. But the thing is, although the king may have known his history, he wasn't completely accurate with it. And that's what I mean by saying that before you make an accusation, know all the facts. He knew a lot of it. He knew the history of the Israelites. He, maybe he studied it, but his facts were contorted. It, it, he didn't have, he had alternate facts. He didn't have it all. Correct. While it appears that he was well aware, again, of Israel's origins in Egypt and their migration into the land of Canaan, he was convinced that an injustice had occurred when Israel robbed the territory that originally belonged to the Ammonites during that time. However, this was factually and historically incorrect because the Ammonites had never occupied the land he was disputing with them about. According to Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3, the Arnon served as a border between Moab and the Amorites, not the Ammonites. The Israelites had gained the rights to this land between the river and the Jabbok by defeating the Amorite king who ruled in Hebron. Now the Ammonites king's reply to Jephthah is a political, is a political, I mean, sorry, a typical political speech claiming land that his people had or have never owned, but basing it on his own history. His real intentions was in, uh, in his real intentions in making these false claims were just to obtain more land in order for him, for him and his nation to have a more fixed and definable border. So upon hearing this king's response to this initial question, Jephthah sends another delegation and responds with a lengthy and precise argument against the king's erroneous case. Stating that Israel has never claimed title to any land belonging either to Moab or Ammon. Thereafter, he asserts Israel's occupation of the territory the Amorites are claiming by using these four arguments. He gives a historical argument, and you see that in verses 16 through 22. He gives a theological argument, which you see in verses 22 and 24. He gives a personal argument in verse 25. And he gives a chronological argument in verse 26. His concluding statement in verse 27 brings the address back to its original point. His original point. 
He says, I have not sinned against you, but you have wronged me by fighting against me. Jephthah also ends by handing the case over to God to judge between the two nations as to whose land it belongs to. And as you see, he's saying, you know what? If this land belongs to you, then your God is going to grant it to you, is going to give it to you. But, you know, if this is our land, God, the true and living God, is going to grant it to us, is going to give it to us. It's clear that Jephthah has no intentions of bowing down and just handing the land over, the land of Gilead, over to the Ammonites. Not surprisingly, the king of Ammon isn't convinced of Jephthah's arguments. Now, making battle between Ammon and Israel an inevitable fact. I'm sorry, in, yeah, inevitable fact. This back and forth exchange between Jephthah and the king of, the, of, of Ammon shows us the difficulties in trying to reason with prideful and stubborn people. One of the most challenging aspects of trying to resolve a dispute between two parties is when one side is unwilling to acknowledge factual information, when one side is unwilling to see the error of their way. No matter how well the facts are presented, no matter how well someone can argue how, just what the true information is, convincing someone they're wrong can be a fruitless endeavor if being right is more important than accepting the truth. It says in Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Now this is especially true when it comes to sharing the truth about Jesus Christ. No matter how well you explain the gospel, there are people out there who, are, who choose to ignore the truth because they're too prideful to admit of being wrong. They're too prideful to admit being wrong. Therefore, Christians ought to have the emotional discipline to be able to walk away, to know when to either walk away or end a conversation that's going nowhere. You see, the devil's goal is to damage your credibility as a witness and weaken your message, as, or you weaken the message of your testimony. And to accomplish this, the devil will find ways to push your emotional buttons to get you frustrated and angry when you're sharing the good news of Jesus. To avoid giving the devil what he wants, it's important, for, it's important that you know how to control your emotions so that they don't control you. Proverbs 14.29 says, People with understanding control their anger. A hot temper shows foolishness. In the end, it's better to walk away from someone who wants to argue just for the sake of arguing. 2 Timothy 2.24 tells us, We must not quarrel, but we must be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient Listen, with difficult people. The approach 
Jephthah took to settle the impending crisis is also helpful in showing us how to effectively, how to effectively engage with unbelievers. And here are just some methods that we see here, how you can, how you can apply his, uh, his method, Jephthah's method. The first thing you all need to do is just determine the person you have in mind, the person you want to approach when it comes to sharing uh, about Jesus, is if they're willing to engage in dialogue. You see, had the Ammonite king been unwilling to talk, he would have just killed uh, Jephthah's first batch of messengers. He would have just said, no, I don't want to hear what he has to say. I'm just going to kill him. I'm just going to kill them all. Even before they had a chance to ask that original question. Find out. Hey, you know, if they're willing to talk to you. Because you know how it is. Some, you know, sometimes you're at a park or you're at, a, you're at work and you just don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to be left alone. You know, be, find out. See if they're willing to talk to you. Now, after that happens, if they're willing to talk to you, if they're willing to open up, before bombarding them with all your words and all your statements, again, the situation may be different, but before you do all that, before stating your, posi your position, determine what theirs is by asking questions. You see, before you can tell someone they're wrong, you have to, un you have to understand why they're wrong. You have to understand what they think, their worldview, their position, what their facts are, what they believe about things. And the only way to find out is just to ask them, to listen, to take the time to, to know what they, what's going on with them. Now, once their position is clear, once you know what it is, explain why or how they're mistaken by presenting your facts in a plain and logical way. Jephthah didn't go in there right away and say, no, you're wrong, we didn't steal it from you. And now he explained, he explained to them in a logical, clear way why that king was wrong. So we have to do the same thing is, is be clear. Be logical. Make sense. Don't just throw random statements out there without you know, explaining yourself. Don't throw big theological Christian words that they may not understand. Use simple and plain language. Your goal isn't to win an argument. That's not what you're there to do. You're there simply to point them to the truth. And it's Jesus Christ, ultimately, who will show them the truth. Now, if they're unwilling to accept the truth, if they're unwilling to hear you after this, you spend some considerable, considerable time with them, if they just don't want to listen, they don't want to hear you, if they're unwilling to, to just being stubborn and argumentative, if they're unwilling to accept the truth, just 
leave it in God's hands. Leave them in God's hands. See, God will hold everyone accountable for what they, for what they say, what they do, for rejecting the truth, for saying, you know what? Yeah, everything you say makes sense, and I see the evidence there, but yeah, no, I'm, I can't accept it. That's, you know, my truth is my truth, and sorry, you know. Just leave it at that. God's going to deal with them sooner or later. God's going to deal with them for rejecting the truth that was presented before them. You know, and it's sad because I think there's just so many people out there that are now in their 80s, 90s, they're at the tail end of their lives. And maybe they've heard the message since they were small, since they be it became understandable to them. But every single time they decided to say no, no, no. And I think every year that an unbeliever lives, it's just another year for them to repent of their sins. Another year that God has given them to accept the truth. When I, you know, when you see these elderly people, like in, in, in and at the end of the, 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 the tail end of their lives, you're like, man, like, why can't you just accept it? Is your pride that high? Is it that strong? And many times it is. Now the other thing too, you know, be willing to leave it in God's hands, but the last thing, don't persist in trying to convince someone who's already made up their mind. You might as well be talking to a rock. You might as well be arguing with the wall. If someone is already convinced, if someone is already has made up their mind, don't continue to fight, don't continue to argue. You know, it's pointless. Don't come out of there hurt, upset, you know. It's not about you, it's their rejection of the truth. When it, you know, later on as you, after you walk away, yeah, you know, do some Monday, Monday morning quarterbacking and say, okay, how can I improve next time? What, Lord, help me to be more effective in, in being able to share your message. But again, this isn't about you. This is about Jesus and His message. You're just an instrument. All you're doing is just planting a seed inside that person. Well, we see here that Jephthah's diplomatic efforts to avoid a conflict failed. And a military conflict seems inevitable. So let's pick up in verse 29. Judges chapter 11, verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah, who traveled through Gilead and Manasseh, and, e and then through Mitzvah and Gilead. He crossed over to the Ammonites from Mitzvah of Gilead. Jephthah made this vow to the Lord, If you will hand over the Ammonites to me, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to greet me, I will return in peace from the Ammonites. I'm sorry, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, 
will belong to the Lord, and I will offer it as a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over the, to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord handed them over to him. He defeated 20 of their cities with a great slaughter from Aror to the, all the way to the entrance of Menith and to abel Karamim. So the Ammonites were subdued before the Israelites. When Jephthah went to his home in Mitzvah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his only child. He had no other son or daughter besides her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, No, not my daughter. You have devastated me. You have brought great misery on me. I have given my word to the Lord and cannot take it back. Then she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said. For the Lord brought vengeance on your enemies, the Ammonites. She also said to her father, Let me do this one thing. Let me wander two months through the mountains with my friends and mourn my virginity. So he said, Go, he said. And he sent her away for two months. So she left with her friends and mourned her virginity as she wandered through the mountains. At the end of two months, she returned to her father and he kept the vow he made, he made about her. And she had never been intimate with a man. Now it became custom in Israel that, that for four days each year the young women of Israel would commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Up to this point, it appears that God had been a passive witness of the events that were taking place. We now see that it wasn't until, until after Jephthah's diplomatic efforts had failed that God becomes actively involved. The author makes it clear in verse 29 that Jephthah is God's choice when he experienced the same kind of divine empowerment that earlier judges had experienced. As with Othniel and Gideon, God once again reached out in mercy and empowered this self-made leader to accomplish his will and his purpose. So once again, I'm sorry, so once the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah, we see that he is initially impromptu to take a tour of the region to possibly recruit troops for the upcoming battle. Now before engaging in this battle, he vows that if the Lord gives him victory, he'll sacrifice as a burnt offering the first thing that comes out of his house when he comes back from this tour, or when he comes back from victory. Although Jephthah's vow emphasizes that God does give the victory, it also reveals his foolish belief that he can manipulate God by negotiating with him. It's important to keep in mind that Jephthah didn't have a human sacrifice in mind. Now, there's been a lot of debates when it comes to this passage. Did he offer his daughter as a burnt sacrifice? Did he, did he put her up in an altar and just burn her up? Or what, what exactly does this mean? And many would make that argument because Jephthah did have um, 
uh, a background uh, that wasn't Jewish, and according to Jewish law, this was this kind of act was prohibited. But that's not. He didn't have human sacrifice in mind. Let me let me explain why. This, what we see here in this passage, is an indication. This is indicated by the by the ancient Hebrew grammar. The masculine gender can be translated whatever comes out or whatever or whoever comes out, and I will sacrifice it. Most Hebrew scholars have indicated that the best translation, I will consecrate it to the Lord, is, I'm sorry, is, I will consecrate it to the Lord, or I will offer it as a burnt offering. So it could be either or, I will consecrate it, I will hand it over to the Lord, or I will offer it as a burnt offering. So in other words, if it be a thing fit for a burnt offering, it shall be made one. If fit for service to God, it shall be consecrated to Him. Now, whether Jephthah was expecting maybe some kind of animal to come out of his house, or maybe a relative that he didn't necessarily get along with, that maybe wronged him, is unknown. Maybe he was expecting for something like that to come out of his house. And he was going to be glad to give it as a gift to God. Verses 32 and 33 then tell us how God defeated the Ammonites for Israel through Jephthah. God came through, and He did. The, the, the Gileads defeated the Ammonites. However, the joy of this victory was short-lived because as soon as he neared his home, as soon as he got within eyesight of his house, the first person to emerge out of his house was his daughter, was his young, beautiful daughter, singing songs, tambourines, just rejoicing dancing his young daughter his actions and words in verse 35 reveal how much he loved her and the deep emotional pain he felt knowing he would have to give her up I don't know about you you guys know my little Bella I there's no way you know I couldn't imagine, I, I, I couldn't imagine doing that, but then, man, I would know that, that pain is, I can feel Jephthah's, Jephthah's pain. How horrible the thought of losing your young, beautiful daughter. Many would argue that Jephthah shouldn't have, shouldn't have kept his vow and should have asked God to forgive him for making such a foolish vow. Now those who make this argument have also said that he had no right to punish or afflict his daughter in any way because of the vow he made to God. However, Jephthah was a man with honor and integrity. And because of his principles, he knew
even if it cost him what was probably the most precious thing to him, the most precious and valuable thing in his entire life. He knew he had to keep his word. He knew he had to keep his promise. Now regarding Jephthah's actions, Pastor David Guzik wrote, in the specific vow, he was foolish and should not have kept it. But the tenacity of character, but the tenacity of character that says, I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot go back on it, on it is glorious and should be the word of every follower of Jesus Christ. Surprisingly, Jephthah's daughter accepts her fate. She says, okay, Dad, the Lord handed you this victory to completely defeat the Ammonites, and I accept it. I accept my fate. She accepts her fate knowing that it was necessary for the deliverance of Israel from the Ammonites. But before she does, now she's negotiating. She goes to her dad and says, okay, before you do this, let me, let's work something out here. She negotiates with her father the privilege of spending two months roaming around, weeping among the hills with her friends as she mourns the fact that she will never marry. Imagine just a bunch of young women out in the hills out here, Trans Mountain, you know, just weeping and crying, maybe laughing, mourning. I mean, the fact that this young woman, this young girl will never be able to be intimate with a man. Or she will never be able to bear children. So that's what they do. She goes for two months and she just has her closest friends with her. Jephthah grants his daughter permission father and he kept the vow he made about her now something that again Jephthah really did offer his daughter as a burnt offering now this is unlikely for several reasons first his daughter took the news of her fate with surprising calm if someone came to you and said hey I made this promise and now I'm going to have to offer you as a, as a burnt offering. I'm going to have to burn you up. I'm going to have to kill you. Would you take it pretty calmly in the way that she did? I don't know about you, but I'd be like, nah, you're crazy. I'd be probably freaking out. You know, I probably would try to go back to San Diego or something. You know, I'd, I'd be freaking out. Second, she asked that she be given time to mourn her virginity, not her life. She wasn't worried about dying. She was worried about not being able to ever have children again. Not being able to be with a man. Third, at the end of her mourning period, the text says that her father kept his vow and that she had never been intimate with a man. Not that he killed her as a, hum as a human sacrifice. Therefore, it's best to assume that Jephthah did not make a burnt offering of his daughter, but instead sacrificed her to serve God, to serve God at the tabernacle for the rest of her life. 
any case, Jephthah's foolish vow is emblematic of the period that had and of that period and had serious implications for his family. And we'll see again that hap you'll see that in the next week in chapter twelve. But as I again look at this passage, I was studying this passage. I think the author of Judges spent most of his time on this uh, of this passage on Jephthah's vow, then on the Ammonite battle, to show us that the foolish things we say and do can sometimes be more devastating than the actions of those who oppose us. Now, prior to reading this, you would think that this that this the that the passage would be talking about the fight between this Ammonite king and Jephthah. You would think that he, that's what the majority of the passage would be about, but it's not. It's about this vow. <coughs> now here are just a couple of valuable lessons we can learn from Jephthah's foolishness. Trying to manipulate God by bargaining or negotiating it's not a smart thing to do. Having successfully negotiated favorable terms for his leadership over Gilead, but having unsuccessfully avoided confrontation with the Amorites through negotiation, Jephthah thought he could do the same with God. Despite having all the proof that God had chosen him, that God had selected him, that God was with him and will help him and give him the victory over the Ammonites, he still remained insecure. He still was unsure of how God would do this, how God would accomplish this. He was still, oh man, yeah, Lord. I, and we see, we, we see this happening with all some previous judges as well. The proof is there, the evidence is there, but they're still insecure and they, they want additional proof. They want more and more and more. And so a lot of times, well, we see here, he begins to negotiate. He wants to get more from God by manipulating him. As Christians, we often make the same mistake of trying to manipulate God by negotiating him negotiating with him when a problem becomes too overwhelming. Now for each person it, it, it is different, but how many times have you prayed, God, I know that you said you'd always take care of me. I know that you said you'd always be there. I know that you said that you'll never abandon me. I know that you said never to be anxious. But get me, if you get me out of this problem, if you get me out of this predicament, if you just Give me the answer. If you just do this or do that, then I'll promise to, and then you fill in the blank. If you ever have, if you ever come, if you ever have come before God in that way, you're essentially doing the same thing Jephthah did here. The hardest part, the hardest part about trusting God is putting that trust into practice when you're in a situation you have no control over. And if you're the kind of person that 
likes to be in control of everything, likes to be in control of every single situation, that is the hardest part about trusting in God, is giving the control over to Him. That takes guts. That takes, I know that it's for some people that it takes a lot. But if you're claiming to trust God, if you claim to have faith, and if you're claiming to believe, and if you know that He's a good God and He's watching over you, that He knows what's best for you, then just trust Him. Apply it. Do it. Just trust Him. Yeah, things may not go exactly how you want them to go, but you know what? Again, everything is in His hands. You're His child. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. For you. So yes, He cares about you. The writer of Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2 said, The one who lives under the protection of the Most High dwells in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, My refuge and my fortress, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Wherever you're at, whatever situation is going on in your life, as hard as it is, hand it over to God. Give it to Him. Trust Him. Another lesson we can learn from Jephthah's foolishness is don't make oaths or promises that you're not going to fulfill. I was horrible at this. My parents never taught me how to be on, well, how to keep promises. My mom would always be like, don't tell your dad. And my dad would just live his own private life. And, uh, you know, we didn't know anything. Uh, you know, we would tell my dad, you promised us this and you promised us that. And, and he would say, yeah, just to say, yeah. And he wouldn't come through. So I told myself, you know, well, what happened is that I carried it over, even in my own relationships. You know, and if, had you known me when I first got married, I just was horrible, horrible at keeping promises. I didn't know how to. It took a long time. It took a long, and, and Robin will tell you. But God showed me. It was Him who showed me how to keep these promises. <coughs> I show my kids, and that's what my, you know, I've taught my kids now since they were small, hey, if you're going to promise something, come through with it. You know, if you're messing around, and if you just, just say, you know, messing around or whatever, <coughs> you know, but if you make an oath, if you make a promise, keep it. Your word is your bond. If you make a vow, keep it. especially when it comes to those marriage vows. Those are vows that you're making to another person in the eyes of God. Those promises, those vows should be kept. You know, he's... He basically witnessed this promise you made with another person. 
And that's why it's important to keep those oaths, to keep those promises in the marriage. Christians, as Christians, we're, we are expected to, to be keepers of our word. <coughs> Never make a promise that you're not able to keep. If you can't keep it, don't make any promises at all. Jesus Christ said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. The Bible speaks about the importance of keeping your word. If you say you're going to do something, make sure you follow through. This is what you call being responsible and mature. For you young ones, if you want to be seen and you want to be known as mature and responsible, keep your word. <coughs> Follow through. Do what you say. If you say you're going to help somebody, help somebody. If you say you're going to do this or do that, do it. Follow through with your word. No one will believe someone who cannot keep his words. If you want to be a Christian who wants to serve as a light of the world so that people are driven to worship God the Father, then you must become a person of your word. Therefore, make sure you think before you speak. Just like Jephthah, though he made a hasty vow, he still had the faith to keep his word. Though it may, it may hurt him and the other people around him, he still kept his promise. The same resolve and tenacity is expected from us Christians, expected from us as Christians today. Although Jephthah's vow was foolish and completely unnecessary, he nevertheless kept his promise, knowing that it would cost him his, his daughter and any future descendants. At that time, that was everything in a society. Continuing the family line. And as Jephthah, as the ruler of the Gileadites, he, didn't have, he wasn't going to have that anymore. He gave up his only daughter and any possible descendants that he may have, any kids that she may have. He gave it up. With this in mind, you can see that Jephthah, Jephthah's keeping of his vow is an act of faith and why the Apostle Paul included him in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. If you look at Hebrews 11 in the New Testament, you will see a large group of names there that Paul mentions that were champions of faith. And Jephthah, as, as, dumb as, this foolish, or as dumb as this vow was, was still included in that hall of faith. Paul, um, Paul included him in that hall of faith. You see, he was willing to give up the hope of having grandchildren to carry on the family name and endure the social stigma of having no descendants. 
all for the sake of obeying God's command of keeping his vow, of keeping his word, of keeping his promise. We can see that Jephthah used his eyes to capture the vision of a better hope of God's promises, which is greater than all that he had hoped for during his physical life. Therefore, we can conclude that Jephthah lived a life of courage, faith, integrity, and vision. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a believer, if you've given, if you, if you say you, you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, that you're a born-again believer, Jephthah's statement at the end of verse 35 ought to remind you of the promise you made when you gave him the keys of your life. When you said, Lord, you know what's best for me. Let me hand my life over to you. What Jephthah's statement here at the the end of verse 35, where he says, I have given my word to the Lord and I cannot take it back. That is what you did. You've given your word to the Lord and you cannot take it back. It's important, therefore, that you be a man or a woman of your word, regardless of where God has you and what's happening in your life. Be a person of your word. But if you have problems being a person of your word with somebody else, be a person of your word with the Lord. Why would you not keep your promises to God. He's kept His, or even if they haven't been kept it, He will keep them. But don't lie to God. Don't, you know, I mean, He knows what's going. You can't, you can't, you can't, manip- you can't negotiate with Him. Be a man or woman of your word. And the sacrifices you make when you hand your life over to Him, the sacrifices that you're going to have to make, the things you're going to have to give up, are nothing compared to the sacrifice Jesus Christ made for you on the cross. Keeping your word may mean giving up certain things, but ultimately it's for your benefit. Paul wrote in Philippians 3.8, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of Him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. One day soon, very soon, Christ, Jesus Christ, will return and fulfill the promises He's made to you and to me. Until then, let us also keep ours by being an example to others, by being an example to the world of how it is to live a life of courage, faith, and vision. tough. I know it's challenging. 
keep in mind He's with you and He will give you the, courage, the strength that you need during those difficult moments. And during those difficult moments, be careful not to say anything that you're going to regret later on, not to do anything that you're going to regret later on. Think before you speak. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you um, for showing us once again through the example of Jephthah that you are God and that you are great and you're merciful. You're patient even when we make dumb mistakes, even when we speak without thinking. Lord, you know that if we were in charge, we would have given up on ourselves a long time ago. But you don't. You're so patient and so loving towards us. And we're thankful, grateful for that, Lord. You've not given up on us. Continue to build us up, Lord. Help us to learn from our mistakes. Help us to learn from the errors of our ways. Show us those things that are just difficult for us to grasp. Lord, if there are things out there that we need to give up, show us what they are, Lord, and give us the strength to be able to give them up. Help us to keep our promises. Help us to be true to our word. Just as you were. I pray for everyone here, Lord. They may be men and women known for their courage, their love, their integrity, their vision. Be with them wherever they may be, wherever they're at. And may they be patient and know how to share the gospel of your son. Send them out, Lord, to do your will. I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time. And we look forward to just hearing more, learning more, Lord. We love you, Lord. Glorify you. We praise you. We pray this, these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.